3. As we've been studying the church of Corinth, this church was a, uh, we're calling it the fractured church, had a lot of issues. We've dealt with a lot of those issues already, and Paul's going to continue to deal with a lot of these issues, through, uh, of course, led by the Spirit of God as he addressed this specific local church here. And uh, this, this church was a remarkable church. Uh, we would say, if you were to visit this church, you'd say it had a lot of wow factor. You would say, wow, that place was impressive. It was uh, probably the most beautiful of buildings, the greatest choir, if we were to put it in kind of the way we do church today, and uh, some of those eloquent, gifted preachers, and, and just so many things. They're a well-resourced church. Uh, uh, the area they were at had, had a lot of commerce, and there was a lot of um, uh, well-to-do. And the church had a lot of problems, though. One of the things that would go, take place in the society was they were known for name dropping. They were known for uh, kind of uh, hitching up their wagon to these, you know, certain names. You know, oh, well, I know so-and-so. And, and all of a sudden, that's impressive in society. And they brought a lot of these things into the church. There were divisions. There were schisms, as we called it, as uh, Scripture calls it. And, and um, they, were, they were a church that was immature in their faith. They were still babies. Paul was telling them, hey, I'd love to give you a, just a nice, big, juicy spiritual steak, but all you can handle is the milk. Right, you would choke. So he had to talk to them with baby talk, and he had to bottle feed them uh, as we, as we kind of looked at. And what's interesting about this church, Paul says in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, you guys are a carnal church. Are you yet carnal? And uh, when he talks about their carnality, if you and I were to say, what's carnality? We might, we might point out a lot of maybe worldly activities. We might point out, you know, well, well here's a carnal Christian. They're still, they're still uh, struggling with drinking. Here's a carnal Christian. They're infatuated with the world. Here's a carnal Christian. They're, and we might list certain things, right? And what's interesting is what Paul brings out is their carnality uh, was the divisions that they had. It was rooted in envy, and it led to these divisions, and, and it was, what was interesting about it, it wasn't like, yeah, we kind of struggle with pride. It was, look how spiritual we are by these divisions we made. You see, I mean, it's one thing when you kind of know you're struggling with a sin. These guys were actually bragging about their sin or their carnality. And so, so Paul's kind of laying these things out, and, and he says, let's get back to the root. And the root that he laid out was Jesus Christ himself. And, uh, and uh, the root is Jesus. And, and uh, what's interesting about that, the way he expressed Jesus, he says, when I came to you, I came not knowing anything but Christ and him crucified. Why is that significant? Well, think about it in a very literal sense. He says, I came, and while you guys are talking about what's big, what's impressive, what society deems as important, he says, I'm coming to you with a vulgar, vulgar message. You don't talk about the cross. That's disgusting. You don't talk about Jesus in that state as he was hanging there on that cross naked, ashamed for all to see, a bloody mess. And he says, when I came, I came not with excellent speech, though Paul could have brought excellent speech. He was a very educated man. I didn't come with philosophy. Corinth loved philosophy. They loved debate. I didn't come with any of those things. I came with this simple message that flips your thinking completely upside down. Well, you think is great... I'm going to tell you what's really great. The lowest thing you can think about. Helpless, naked, vile, hanging on a cross. That's the power. And he associates the message of the cross with power. They would look at that and say, there's no power with that. In fact, to the Jew, that would be incredibly offensive. To the Greek, that's ridiculous. And he says, but you know, us who are saved, those, us who have experienced it, this is the power of God. 
And that's what we're going to glory in. He brings it down to its basics, uh, back to the roots. Paul, what was he doing was exposing that the, the same way you get saved, by humbly coming before Christ. Humility. He says that's the way we ought to live. Humility. Well, you guys are bragging, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, well, I'm of Christ. He says, we need to come back and say, who are you really? Well, I'm a nobody. I'm just simply an instrument. I'm simply a tool that Christ can use. So this has been the theme, and now he's zeroing in, and, and, he's, and he's talking to the church. He says, now let me talk about you specifically, Church of Corinth. Let me, let me zero in on some things. Let's talk about you as a local church, what the church ought to look like, the spirit of the church, what, what spirit should that church have? So the first illustration he gives in chapter 3 is the spirit of, of uh, agriculture. He talks about a vineyard, and he talks about uh, the husbandry, and, and, um, and basically he kind of equates this. The local church is like God's vineyard, God's field, if you would. Now, a part of this field, he said, we need to have some very important roles. We need some people that will plant. But what good is it if all we did was come and watered and there was no seed in the ground? And so we need someone after this, and then after the seed comes, what good is if the seed's in the ground, but then nothing, there's no moisture, there's no water. So, so what we need is we need some moving parts, but, but let me, and he kind of zeroes in, and he says this, he says, that seed will never grow unless God gives the increase. So you can do all your part. You can have the right seed, you can have the right water, you can have the right sunlight, but there's an element of that seed that you have zero control over. And that it's his actual growth. So he lays it out. Well, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers. So therefore, in fact, he goes on. We looked at it last week. Uh, uh, in verse 7, Neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. You know what he's saying? Me, as Paul, as an individual, as one who God used, I'm nothing. And Paul, Apollos, uh, also, likewise, Nothing. Now, why is he making this emphasis? Because they thought they were something because they're hitching their, hitching their wagon to these guys, celebrity pastors. He says, guys, there's no, there's no celebrities in God's work. The only celebrity we should be concerned with is Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one we should make much of. So he's kind of bringing things back and bringing things into focus where they ought to be. <clears throat> Then Paul went, uh, so, so, so as Paul gives this illustration, he says, hey, so I planted. That, that, was, that was important. You can't have somebody just water if there's not been any plants put in the ground. So what did Paul do? He goes to Corinth for 18 months. He works a day job, uh, makes tents, and preaches the gospel and disciples. And, and after 18 months of planting, there was a baby church starting to sprout up. Then another guy comes along by the name of Apollos. After being trained by Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus, he comes over and he, he starts watering. What's he doing? He's discipling them and he's, he's growing them and he's taking them to that, that next step of, of growth. And, and you know, there are some that are called to plant. Some called to water. And, and uh, elsewhere we learn that God calls some to reap the harvest. Some reap where they did not sow. You see, Sometimes you may lead a person to Christ and think, oh, wow, that was easy. I, I must be a pretty good Christian. That was just like, man, I just led that person, and they got saved. And, uh, and you don't even realize what God was doing behind the scenes. You don't know the other interactions they had, how God was working to get them to that point where they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And, and see, that's what's going on. We are co-laborers together. Some do plant and some do water, and, but at the end of the day, God gives the increase. 
I told you uh, uh, a friend of mine I got in touch with recently, he told me, he said, he said, uh, remember when you saved me those years ago? And I said, I didn't save anybody. It's God that gives the increase. Some are planting, some are praying, some are watering, but God's the one who redeems people. So he gives the uh, uh, agricultural uh, illustration here. And then he starts to use an illustration of a building, and that's where we'll start in our text. We'll pick up on verse 9. We did touch on it last week, but verse 9, it says this, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are his husbandry, that's the produce, and then here's where he pivots and, and shifts the, the focus. Ye are God's building. Ye are God's building. And this morning, that's what I want to talk about today, the, 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 this topic, we are the building. We are the building. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you'd help us this morning as we look to your word. May you do what only you can do. Would your Holy Spirit have free reign in our hearts, in our lives? And Lord, I pray that you put your finger on some issues today that, that folks may be dealing with and, uh, and understand something that, that, that you gave the church. You purchased the church with your own blood. You loved the church. You died for the church. And Lord, the church is your vehicle to, to raise mature Christians, for us to grow together, for us to serve one another. And, and Lord, I pray that you help us to see that, that this will impact our our commitment to you, it will impact our commitment to your church and understand how vital it is for our own personal growth. Help us, Lord, as we look at this now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, you've often heard it said, uh, the church is not the building. And that's true, right? Uh, you know, some, some religions kind of, kind of almost worship the building and say, uh, that's the church. Uh, and, and, and sometimes we're not careful, we kind of fall into that lingo. Um, I might, uh, I might uh, call somebody up and say, hey, could you give me a hand down at the church? And uh, there's a term we used to say uh, back in the old days that we should probably try to bring back a little bit. We used to call it the church house. Why would we call it that? Because it's the building that houses the church. Right? And we say the church is the people. The church is the, the, the you know, the word church means assembly. The church is the assembly. When we've assembled together, we are the church. And, and um, it was a very base level definition. But what's interesting here is, as Paul is now bringing that very point together, he uses an illustration saying, you are the building. You're a building. But we say the church is not a building. And he says, you are the building. <laughs> Two main thoughts this morning as we consider this illustration of a building. And um, God shows us, first of all, uh, or God's going to show us how the church is the building and how that you're a part of that building. So two questions that's going to be answered is, how is the church, the people, the building, and what kind of a building are we? What kind of a building are we? You see, it's one thing to be a building, but then you've got to ask the question, what's the purpose of that building? What's the purpose of that building? We could go around town and say, well, here's, you know, here's this store, here's this restaurant, or what have you, and say, these are the purposes for this building. We answer the question in this illustration, if we are a building, what is the purpose of this building? Are we a building, and what kind are we? And that's going to drive everything we do if we can answer that question, what kind of a building we are. So look at verse number 10. Paul says this, uh, According to the grace of God, which has given me as a wise master builder, I have laid a foundation, and another buildeth thereon. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. But notice what he says there, according to the grace which is given unto me. That's the starting place. When you build a building, 
a building needs blueprints. Uh, and it needs, uh, it needs a general project manager. And that's the illustration that, 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 that's being brought out here. Is, uh, is he's saying, I'm the master builder. What was given to Paul to, to be the basis of his, of his building as a master builder? Well, he's given the blueprints according to the grace that is given me. Now, what's interesting is I've always looked at that and thought, well, and then this maybe could be taken two ways, but I always, I always looked at that as here's the gift or here's the grace that Paul had. He goes out, he's the planter. He's the one that lays the seed. But also think about this. What was Paul's message? It was the message of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. And, and as according to the grace that was given him, this is the foundation. This is, this is the blueprints. That's the model he's going to build this church after, a model of grace. And then, of course, the grace to do this gift, to do this ability, this purpose, if you would, according to the grace which is given me. His job was to follow the blueprints. His job as a master builder was not to draft the blueprints, but to follow the blueprints. Um, and, of course, it was given, it was drafted by God. Paul basically was saying, my job is to go to this place where the gospel has not been preached. That was always his stated purpose. And, uh, and by the way, I love people that are willing to go somewhere where the gospel has not been preached. You know there are still places in this world today where the gospel has not been preached? I thank God for our missionaries willing to go somewhere where there's no church and just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carve out a work here for the Lord. And I was talking with a missionary just this week that we're probably going to have come in uh, uh, this, uh, this fall. And he's, he's looking at a new area. Uh, they're, they're, they're over there in uh, uh, Europe. And they're looking at a new area where there's no church and it's an area where it's very strong Muslim population. And he says, there's, brother, there's no church here. And I want to go there and I want to reach these Muslims. And I also want to reach uh, the other people. And this is going to be a nice kind of border area where I can reach both. And, uh, and I thought, wow, what a, bold, what a bold commitment to follow the Lord and to not only preaching where it has not been preached, but to be where people are antagonistic to the message of the gospel. And he wants to go there, and he's putting his life and his family's life on the line for why? For the cause of Christ. Is there a greater cause to put your life on the line for? He says, I'm going. I thank the Lord for those like that. You see, some are called to start, others are called to finish. Some are called to lay that foundation, and some are called to build upon that foundation, and, and some to plant, others to water. Uh, um, some, some, some will, will do all the, that foundational work. Others will put up the framework. And, and, uh, and, and this is the part of that building. By the way, when Paul talks about building on another man's foundation, he's not talking about that as a bad thing. That just wasn't his thing. You know, when my wife and I left California, we, uh, we laid a foundation in the church we were at. And the Lord raised up another man to come. And, and what's he doing? He's now building on that. And now later on, as God called me to this church, I've shifted gears. I'm no longer laying a foundation. I'm now building upon a foundation. There was a church here. There was already something started and something that had begun. And, uh, and he's going to lay out this foundation and, and, and talk about the importance of the foundation. But, but, uh, but it's not all the same calling for everybody uh, all the time. When Paul gave his state of philosophy in Romans 10, uh, 15, 10, here's what he says. He says, Yea, I have strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. Paul's heart desire, his calling from God, was to go where the gospel had not been preached. Interestingly, it's just kind of a side uh, note. He wrote that to the church at Rome as he was desiring to go to Rome, which tells us 
no apostle had been to Rome at that point. You know, why is that important? Because the popes think Paul was in Rome, or the pope, the, the, the Catholics think Paul was in Rome as the first pope, and uh, Paul, uh, Peter was never in Rome. Did I say that right? Peter. Peter. They said Peter. Peter was in Rome, but Peter was never in Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome. Do I need to start over that whole thing? Let me just step back. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm just going 100 miles an hour today. So, here's what they believe. Uh, the Catholics believe that Peter was the first pope. And they get that when Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, thinking they were talking about Peter. But Jesus was talking about the statement Peter made, that he is the Christ. And uh, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And so they thought, well, surely that must be the first pope. And, uh, and uh, so they say, well, the first pope had to be in Rome. And, and they somehow placed Peter in Rome. But we have no record of Peter ever being in Rome. And, uh, and Paul here says, I want to go where the gospel's not been preached. And by the way, Romans, I want to go to where you're at. And, uh, and so that's just a little, little thing. And by the way, Peter also had a, uh, a wife. <clears throat> I'm going to move on. So I, I think Paul had in his mind, when he talks about this, you are God's building. And he talked about himself as a master builder. I think he had in mind, and this is just my opinion, um, uh, the Old Testament temple. In fact, in a few more verses, he's going to actually shift a little bit more and talk about the temple. And, um, and uh, as a metaphor, will shift. But, but God gave the blueprints of the tabernacle back in the Old Testament, and then later on the temple. And when God gave those blueprints, he told them, he said, I want you to call certain wise builders. Certain wise builders. I don't want just any general contractor. I want ones that are certain wise builders to come and build the temple of God. Why? Because it's the temple of God. You see, this is not just a convenience store. This is not just a marketplace. This is not just a restaurant. This is, this is the temple of God. So he's saying, I want there to be a wise builder. So when Paul says, I came as a wise master builder, and how did he come? By the grace of God. He came as a wise master builder. Uh, uh, Paul is saying here, God has given me grace, uh, this calling, this giftedness, because every building needs a wise master builder. They need some point of conduct, uh, some, some point to, to take charge, who can read the blueprints, interpret the blueprints, and bring them to fruition. Paul said, I was that master builder. Look at verse number 10. According to the grace which is given me as a wise master builder, here's what he says, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereupon. I've laid the, now he's going to start introducing some parts. What parts of this building? There's, going to, there's a foundation. And then there's others that are going to be building upon. So we have the project manager, that's Paul. We have the foundation, we have the building parts. And the first part there is the foundation. You can't build a, a building and add a foundation later. I mean, you can try, but it's kind of a big job, okay? You've got to detach it completely. And, uh, and, and you can't just like have an afterthought, you know, maybe at some point I'll, I'll have this foundation laid, but right now I just really got to get to the roof. And it's just not going to work. You have to have that foundation. There has to be an order to it. And, and so in certain areas, foundations have certain codes. Dave, I don't know if there are any codes here in Alaska. <laughs> but, but certain areas are very strict with their codes. Right? Some places are known for tornadoes. Some places have, uh, have hurricanes. In California, especially some of the tall buildings, you had to have very strict uh, foundation codes to be able to withstand uh, an earthquake or uh, for a tall building, the high winds that, that come at the very top. 
And what's really amazing, I don't know if you've ever looked at some of the foundational uh, uh, things. Uh, Blake, I'm sure you've seen some of this stuff, the counterweights in the basement and so forth to, to balance these earthquakes. It's pretty phenomenal when you see like the model that's laid out. Here's what happens if a 9.0 earthquake hits. And, and um, uh, it's pretty amazing the stuff they go through. But, but they have very strict foundational codes. Why? Because if the foundations are destroyed, there's nothing you can do which is what the psalmist was alluding to when he said, when, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? In fact, that's a great verse as we consider even America, as we consider the direction we're going on. Hey, if the foundations get destroyed, why is it so important to look at all these things? Because there was a good foundation. And if the foundation is destroyed, what, what happens to the rest? I'll tell you what happens. It's condemned. You see, you can't just slap a new paint job on it if the foundation is eroded. As you make it as pretty as you want, that thing's going to crumble. The foundation is incredibly important. So what is the foundation? Is the foundation Paul? Is Paul the foundation of this building? No. He wanted to be very clear that it was all about Jesus Christ. See, there was a master builder, there was a foundation, there are other builders... And that would apply to Apollos. He's one of the other builders. That would apply to, to Cephas or Peter. He's one of the other builders. It would apply to anyone that was in the local church helping to build people. That's what this is about. This illustration is about people. You are the building. We are the building. And so anyone who's a part of building people is a part of this as, as a worker. And so that would apply to many of you. You see, as, as, as we are laborers, as we are, are builders, as we are building lives, uh, you know, some of you are, are, are great helpers in our kids' classes, and some of, you, some of you are parents here. What are you doing? You're investing in lives. That's building. So that, that applies to you that there are some builders. That's why it says, take heed how you build. You see, the imparting of truth um, or the, 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 the doing your part uh, in a building is not about the structure. It's not about the renovations. The most important part that we're dealing with are the souls of people. That's what this is about. The people make up the building. And, and so there in verse number 10, it says, But let every man take heed how he build thereupon. What upon? Upon the foundation. Upon that foundation. It's the, build, the, the, the building is the people. Are we getting this? Are we getting this illustration? So then, as we consider the church, as we consider the local church, here's, here's the conclusion. It's really about people work. What is the building and what is the work? Because he's talking about labor and he, what's he trying to do? And keep in mind the context. What we're talking about are the divisions. He's trying to bring us back together to a sing, singleness of mind. And we say, what is this purpose and what is this building? How many times we see in the epistles uh, being of one mind, of one accord, striving together for the faith of the gospel? What does it mean to be one mind? Does it mean we're a bunch of robots and we're all like, you know, I've got to think alike, we've got to do that? No, no. He says, let's get back to this singular focus. Let's get back to what is the most important thing. We're going to start with Christ, that foundation. Paul says, I'm laying this example as a master builder. Where do we go from here? And the challenge is this because it's people, take it seriously. Take it seriously. It's not just a building that can be replaced. We're talking about people. So there's a master builder. There's a foundation. There are other builders. Look at verse number 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. There's our foundation. Um, now, he's saying, let's talk about this foundation. 
this foundation is non-negotiable. There are various styles, <clears throat> sizes, uses of buildings, but the foundation is very important. There are certain uh, prerequisites that foundation must have. And, and as the church being this, this, this building, there are going to be different sizes, there are going to be different talents, there's going to be different things. In fact, he already pointed out some of the differences of other churches with Corinth. He said, he said as far as their giftedness, he says, Church of Corinth, you come behind no other church. They're a very gifted church. But he says, he says here's the non-negotiable. If it's going to be a church, if it's going to be, if it's going to be this type of building, the temple, if you would, he says, he says this is non-negotiable. Jesus Christ must be the foundation. We have to have, uh, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. You can't change the foundation. You can't build the building and later on change the foundation. You may have to tear the whole building down and come back down to the foundation, but what he's saying is this foundation has to be sure. This foundation cannot change. Sometimes the building might start to have some problems. Sometimes the building might start to go off of what the original plan was. And sometimes you might just have to tear the thing down. But he says, keep the same foundation and build it yet again. I've been around some churches. They had to rebuild. They had to build it again. Paul said to the church of Galatia, I travail in birth again. Using the illustration of a woman giving birth. But he says, again. Now, how many women would, uh, would, would like to go back and give birth to the same child again? That's kind of what Paul was saying. He's like, guys, it's like I have to start over with you. What's he doing? Tearing it down. Let's redo it from the foundation up again. Sometimes that has to be done. But we cannot have a different foundation. Look at verse number 12. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, what foundation? Christ. Christ is the foundation. If any man build upon this foundation, um, <clears throat> gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. Pause there for a second. So as leaders are investing in people, as people are discipling and mentoring, <clears throat> that's the work of the church. And if you're going to do the work of the church, if you're going to be a leader, you're, you're going to have to be used of God to invest in other people then here's what he's saying. Be careful the way you do it. Be careful the way that you're going to build people. Be careful the way that you're going to invest in people. We take the wise, uh, we talk about the wise master builder. We talk about foundation in Jesus. We talk about the other builders. Now we're going to talk about the building materials. What materials do we use in this building? There's something about valuable building materials that God is very interested in. Now, we're in 2021. In the last two years, all building materials have become very valuable. Uh, it would have been wise in 2020 to take out all your IRA that you have in gold and put it in lumber, okay? Uh, that thing just shot way up, okay? But, uh, of course, it came back down, but it's still pretty expensive. But what's interesting is when you look in the Bible, um, God's not talking about when he talks about valuable things. He's not talking about two-by-fours. He's not talking about plywood. He's not talking about drywall. Uh, those aren't the things that God esteems as important. In fact, look at verse number 12. Now, if, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. There's two categories of building materials. You have the expensive stones. What are, what are those about? Those are what will stand the test of time. Those are, uh, uh, if you go over to the Holy Land, you're going to find uh, buildings in, uh, made out of stone that are, that are hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years old, that are still standing. Marble. 
And then the, the expensive stones that were carved and cut out, they've stood the test of time. These are building materials. And then you've got the common building materials, the wood, hay, and stubble. What's that for? That's for a structure you don't plan on standing very long. Now today, what do we do? We, we, you know, we think short term, okay? Um, I remember uh, when uh, the house my wife and I lived in when we were in Southern California, it was a part of a track housing and everything, and all the houses were less than five years old. And uh, they were just done super quick, slapped together, and uh, already five years old, several of them were starting to have a lot of issues falling apart. They weren't meant to last forever. They were meant to get a tenant in it as quick as possible. All right? Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what's going to stand the test of time. And by the way, this illustration, Corinth really understood because Corinth was destroyed by fire in 146 B.C. And everything burnt. And the only thing that remained were the stone structures. You know what remained? The temples. The temples stayed. But, 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 but your, your, your common buildings, they all burned. Wood, hay, and stubble. They burned to the ground. And so the temple stood, the more expensive buildings, they stood out. Uh, the precious stones stood. What burned was the wood, hay, and stubble. And so when Paul uh, was at Corinth, he was probably, um, when he was there making tents and, and whatnot with his little side job, he was probably in a little booth or a little building that was made of wood, hay, and stubble. Why? It was cheap. And had to be thrown together quickly. He didn't have time to sit around and wait for a marble to be cut out and have a big permanent thing. He was going to put together something very simple. So it was going to be made with wood and the framing of wood and the hay. The hay would be used as insulation or the hay would be used in making, uh, making a mortar and the, uh, uh, the, 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 the clay work, if you would. And then, and then the, the, uh, the stubble would be what you put on the roof and we'd throw this thing together. It wasn't meant to last. It wasn't meant to stay there. It was quick. It was cheap. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not a permanent thing. This is what Paul's laying out here. And as we consider this being a building, sometimes I think we kind of separate this portion of the scripture and we kind of, we kind of say, all right, over here, wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious stone, and it has nothing to do with the previous text. But hang on, he's talking about you are the building. He's talking about the people that are being built up. It's not a quick thing. It's not a cheap thing. So when it comes to building people, if you and I, we are the building, we have to invest in people in a substantive way. We have to invest in people in something that's long-term. We have to, we have, there has to be some permanence to it. How are we investing in people? Where are people, uh, 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 where, where people are really understanding who Christ is? Where people are really understanding, they're rooting themselves in the word of God. Things that will last. The Bible talks about bringing forth fruit that should remain. Something that lasts. So will their lives that we're investing in, is it going to represent gold, silver, and precious stone, or are these uh, quick buildings that we're throwing up? See, that takes, that takes uh, a lot longer to do the, the, the gold, silver, and precious stone. It takes a lot longer to invest in something that's going to last. It's going to have some permanence to it, that when the fires come, when the fiery trials to come, it doesn't burn down, but it stays standing. There's a permanence to it. See, if we want wood, hay, and stubble, church, it's relatively easy to gather a crowd. See, the entertainment industry has this down great. They can gather a crowd and they can even charge you for it. And I think too often what we're doing today is we're, we're, we're doing a wood, hay, and stubble church. We're, we're keeping it nice and shallow. We're keeping it nice and entertaining. And uh, there's nothing of any permanence to it. You know, it's interesting. How you uh, are... are how many of you have recognized what, what has been recognized really for the last probably 20 years that uh, we're losing our young people in church? Have you recognized that? 
And so what we've done is we've tried to create a culture, and I say we, I mean Christianity as a whole. We, 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 we thought, okay, here's some things that we need to do. We need to make it more exciting so they'll stay. So we do some things to try to make it more exciting. And then we start thinking, we need to evaluate the content of our sermons. We need something that is going to catch their attention because there are a lot of things out here pulling for their attention. You know what we need to do? We need to abandon theology and just stick to self-help. Practicality. That's what people like. So we're going to bring sermons, uh, you know, five points to a healthy marriage, uh, uh, three principles for good finances, and, uh, and by the way, a lot of things that the Bible speaks to, but we're, all, we're chasing these things that, oh, uh, you know, and come back next week, church, and I'm going to have this fun formula for you. And we've completely abandoned the Bible. We've abandoned theology. And, uh, and, and by the way, theology matters because that is the why behind everything that we do. And so what's interesting about this, that's, that's the approach that has happened. And, and here's the question that needs to be asked. Has it changed the statistics? It hasn't. The statistics are still the same. So why don't we get back to the right foundation? Why don't we get to the back to the emphasis of Jesus Christ and who he is? And by the way, let's get back to this simple phrase, and this is going to hurt someone's feelings here. It's not about you. Are we okay? Anybody leaving yet? It's not, Dave's about to leave. It's not about you. Should we say, uh, I'm gonna, let's, let's say this. It's not about me. On the count of three, ready? One, two, three. It's not about me. You know what we do? We even make the worship of God about me. God just makes me feel so good. God has done so much for me. And, uh, and, and, and I understand that our worship of God is going to be based on how awesome he is in our context. But let's make sure that it's all about how awesome he is. Because that's the focus of the church today. I'm using that in a broad term, the Christianity today. About me, how God makes me feel, all this kind of stuff. And what, what's happened? We, 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 this is wood, hay, and stubble stuff. This is not something that stands the test of time. This is not something that is going to keep these young people in church when they don't have to be here because their parents are here. Well, that's wood, hay, and stubble. And by the way, I, I like having fun. I like, you know, we have, we have youth group on Tuesday nights and we feed our kids and, and we have a good time and we throw dodgeballs at each other and I, co I run for cover. And, uh, and we have that kind of fun and I'm not against that, but, but, but we need to make sure that we're not building wood, hay, and stubble stuff. So I dragged them through the boring part where we're, we're talking about apologetics on Tuesday nights. Our teenagers are learning how to defend the faith. We'll see if it sticks. We'll see if it stands the test of time. Because what we're going to learn in the text is, is we're not going to know till a day. There's a day that's going to reveal it. So I don't know today. But I do know this, he's given me a blueprint, God's given me a foundation, God's given me the things that are needed, and I would say, if we stick to this, I don't have to get all crafty and looking at man's philosophies and man's things and start modeling after the world, which is exactly what the church at Corinth did. Here's what the world did, here's what the world thinks is important, here's what the world is emphasizing, and we bring that into the church, and we wonder why it's wood, hay, and stubble, and the slightest little flame, it just goes up in flames. 
How come that didn't last? I thought that would have lasted. Let me give you a little hint about ministry. What you win people with, you're going to have to keep them with. That's why we don't have the big flashy bands and light shows. And let's keep it simple. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Let's keep that foundation. Let's stick to the Word of God. Let's just line upon line, precept upon precept. And you'll be surprised how much the Holy Spirit starts saying, oh, here's something you needed. Here's something that, that you can apply this week. Here's something that, that plugs in here. And I'm all about application, but let's make sure it's drawn from our theology first. That we understand God and we're, and we're looking at his words, what he has given us. And so, so he's ch- saying, hey, if you're going to be building a part of this building, and the building is the people, let's make sure what kind of a building, what kind of building materials we're using. Because God likes the nice things. Remember David when he was helping uh, Solomon prepare for the building of the temple? David was so passionate about it, but God told David, no, but I'll let your son do it. So David was like, all right, I'm on it. I'm going to start doing everything I can to make sure my son's a success. And what does he start doing? He starts pulling aside gold. He starts pulling aside workers, people with instruments. And he starts preparing all those things. You think, well, where did those instruments come from? I don't know. Maybe David started giving music lessons because it's going to take some time to build that building. And day one, they needed to have some instruments. And so he's got some people, all right, all right, uh, all you guys, you willing to build? You guys are wise builders? Here's a master builder. I want, I want you guys to learn from him. He's going to train you guys when the time is right. And he's getting all the supplies. He's getting all the, all the things that are necessary. So when Solomon comes, he just tells Solomon, hey, don't be afraid. Be of good courage. Go and build. And he built. And then the day of the dedication of the temple, Solomon gets out there and he gives a, a speech a prayer of dedication to God. They've got, they've got priests ready with sacrifices. They've got the musicians lined up. They've got everything lined up. And the Shekinah glory of God comes down on that building. So thick and so strong the smoke was that the priests could not even minister. And this went on for seven days. So then Solomon finally sacrifices to the tune of tens of thousands of animals. Then God tells him that famous passage. He tells them, hey, there are going to be times of great blessing. There are going to be times of pestilence. There are going to be different things. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. He kind of gives them two options on the table, and then God sits back and says, all right, so I'll be waiting, I'll be listening. What are you guys going to do? Folks, that was after a seven-day revival. We always look at that verse. Here's the formula for revival. No, they already had revival. All I'm saying is this, that, that, that God is very interested in, in how they did it. And it's not that God's so impressed with the gold and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm saying. He wants stuff that's going to remain. He wants something that's going to last uh, and stand the test of time. Why? Because that's his character. Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today, and forever. And God is going to stand the test of time. He created this world. He's going to destroy this world. He's going to recreate it with a new heaven and new earth. And we're going to be with him forever. And that is the character of our God. And he says, I want something like that with me forever in heaven. What is going to last? What is going to go on? And that is how we must build. That is the thing. This is not about instant gratification. That's this world. It's not about fun. It's not about the wood, hay, and stubble. Though, guess what? We're going to have some fun. 
In fact, I love the family of God, and I love church, and I have a wonderful time at church, and I love getting around the people of God, and uh, I live for it. Well, you're the preacher. You're supposed to. No, (laughs) that's why I'm a preacher, because I loved it before I was a preacher. (laughs) And you mean I get to do this for God full time? What a life. And I get to visit homes, and I get to talk with other people and, and tell them about Jesus and open up the Bible. And, and we, had, we had a couple over uh, the other day, and we're having dinner, and we're supposed to be having dinner. And, and uh, next thing you know, we've got the Bible open. We're talking about stuff and, and just, just having a Bible study impromptu right there. And, and, uh, and one of them said, wow, this is like changing my whole life. I said, that's why I do this. That's what I live for. But I sure hope it's gold, silver, and precious stones, not wood, hay, and stubble. I hope it's a real investment. You see, the gold, silver, and precious stones takes much more time, much more labor, much more prayer, much more study, more discipleship. But it's what's real and what will last. It's a real investment. Look at verse number 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. That's interesting. The day shall declare it. What day? There'll be a day when it's declared. It'll be made manifest. That word manifest means brought to light, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So what is the work? The work is the people. It's the people. That's the context. Let's keep everything in its context. It's the people. The good, uh, the gold, silver, and the precious stones. The people. Have we, have we built with gold, silver, and precious stone? What kind, of, what kind of people have we carved out? Or is it wood, hay, and stubble people? Paul, uh, Peter uses a similar uh, uh, illustration in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 through 6. Uh, to whom coming as unto light, living stones, uh, excuse me, unto a living stone, uh, Jesus Christ, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built, upon, built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God by Christ Jesus. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. What's it saying? Uh, he's saying as Christ was that cornerstone that was rejected, you now built upon that foundation are lively stones as well. You are a building. You are a temple. You are, uh, you are God's building. So who are the stones? The stones are you and me. And as leaders, as mentors, as parents, we're investing in people in a real substantive way. Is this going to go up in flames at the first sign of fire, or is this going to stand the test of time like the temples uh, in, in the fires of Corinth? So when do we know if our ministry is valid? When do we know how it's worked out? Look at verse 13 again. Every man's work shall be manifest, for the day shall declare it. One day we're going to know, because it shall be revealed, brought to light by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, I just suffer a lot. Let me stop at verse 14 for now. Um, if any man build thereupon, that he may receive a reward. So what day is God talking about here? Well, there's a day that you and I must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear. In fact, Paul references that in, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 
2 Timothy 4.1, I charge thee therefore before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Uh, Jesus Christ one day is going to judge the works. Jesus Christ, we are going to stand before and give an account. Now I want to say this, this is not purgatory. <clears throat> I know I already picked on the Catholics once this morning, but let's do it again. Um, Purgatory is a made-up doctrine, not found in the Bible. But they'll take this verse and they'll say, see, this is where the fire has to purge their impurities until they're good enough to get through and, and so forth. No, no, purgatory was a money-making doctrine, by the way. Uh, that was just made up. But uh, it's not talking about purgatory. But neither is it teaching that you can lose your salvation or you have to do works for your salvation. Well, when I stand before Jesus, they're going to bring my, my works out, and, 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 and if it's too much gets burned up, I'm not going to make it in. Well, it's interesting. Look at verse uh, 14, or uh, verse number 15. If any man's works shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. See, it has nothing to do with your salvation. It has to do with, with him with Christ. See, when you got saved, all your sins were gone. And I think sometimes when we look at the word judgment, our mind runs there. Our mind thinks negative. Our mind thinks, oh no, judgment. Did you know there are judges at the Olympics? What's their job? Their job is to find the worst. No, they're judging the best, right? They're judging the best. What is this judgment about? By the way, where were your sins judged? On the cross at Calvary, Colossians 2. Every one of my sins, every one of your sins were judged on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there on that cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. So if he's washed away all my sins, removed them as far as east is from the west, never be remembered again, why would he remember them again? I don't know. He's now judging the things I've done for him. Whether it be good or bad. Hey, did that come through as wood, hay, and stubble? Was that a temporary thing that pff, went up in smoke? Or was that something of, of substance? Was that something that was going to last? Is that something that was going to go on? See, what do people, what do people lose at this judgment? It says they'll suffer loss. Here's what they lose. They lose reward. They lose potential. They lose what God had for them if they had just simply followed, if they had just obeyed. See, the Lord wants to commend us. The Lord wants to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He wants to say those things. And unlike pop preaching today, he's not just going to say it just because you're his favorite. No. There's going to be some things judged and weighed out to say, hey, is this one worthy of this commendation? So there ought to be a love in my heart for the appearing of Jesus Christ. He's my motivation. He's the one I want to I serve. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul talks about this, this crown for him. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. And by the way, I wonder how I would live today differently if I knew tonight the Lord was coming. If I knew tonight I was going to stand before him. Uh, I wonder what would be different if I had the judgment seat of Christ in my view. You know we don't preach enough on the judgment seat of Christ. We tend to make everything about salvation. Oh, well, I'm in. What do you think it means to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? What do you think it means to talk about the receiving of reward? And by the way, where do those crowns come from to cast at Jesus' feet? See, the Bible is teaching that there's coming a day when our works will be tried by fire. What happens in fire? 
wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up. We make godly investments with right motives, it tends to stay. It tends to come through as gold, silver, and precious stone. When we make superficial investments, selfish investments, the look-at-me investments, none of those things will last. Doing God's will, God's way with the right heart motives. You see, we're not called to be successful. We're not called to be famous. In fact, if you look at the text, it says, uh, verse 13, the fire will try every man's work of what sort it is. What sort it is. Not what size it is, what sort it is. Am I investing right into people? Am I investing the right way into people? Uh, and and uh, uh, that is what I will uh, answer for the judgment seat of Christ. Not how well or how far they went or anything like that. How well uh, am I investing into people? Am I investing gold, silver, and precious stone? Am I taking the time? Am I carving this thing out right? And by the way, that's a sobering thought. How well am I doing? It's not just, okay, I'm available and I'm here and I'm in your life and I'm involved, but, but how thoroughly and how well am I doing this thing? 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 11, I quoted verse 10 a second ago, and he says this, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's an interesting verse. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Hey, if you die as an unrepentant sinner, that is a terrifying thought. And knowing the terror of the Lord, I want to persuade you. I want to tell you, hey, today is the day of salvation. Harden not your heart. Get saved now while you still can. Miss the terror of the Lord. But also, terrible thing that is going to be tried by fire. I should work. I need to work with people. I need to take it serious. It's people work that matters. Always equate what you do with how it benefits people, and pray for the people whom you are serving. So we are the building. Point number two, and this will be quick. What kind of building are we? Look at verse number 16. Know ye not that ye, ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Does the Bible teach that individual believers are the temple of God? Yes. The answer is yes, in case you're wondering. Yeah, the Bible does teach that. Does this passage teach that? No. One of the reasons I like the King James Bible is because it has the yeast. People say, oh, there's yeast and these and thous. That doesn't make any sense. Actually, it's a very descriptive language. Did you know ye is plural? He's talking to who at this point? Who, to whom is he talking? Church. Which Church the church of Corinth. And he tells them in a plural statement, ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. You is also plural. Ye and you is plural. Thee and thou is singular. Every time. So who's he talking to? This church, as they assemble, this church, as they come together, he says this, there is a sense in which the gathered church is the temple, is the dwelling place, is the residing place of God. Yes, he lives in you personally, but as we come together, guess who shows up? Or do we really want to say this? Yes, this place becomes sanctified when we gather together. Think about that. That gives some gravity to it. When we sing our songs uh, by, by habit, because I've sung this hymn a million times, and we're not even thinking about what we're singing, not realizing, wait, the Lord is here right now. 
And as we open the scriptures and I'm thinking about, I wonder what we're doing for lunch today. Hey, the Lord is here now. Ye are the temple, the habitation of God as we gather. When God used the word uh, for the temple, by the way, he didn't use the word that speaks of a building itself. What's used for the word temple right here is, uh, is the, the, the place, uh, the inner sanctuary. It was the place in the pagan society where uh, uh, it was called uh, where God would meet with man. Lowercase g, God, where God would meet with man. That was the Corinth thinking. If you were to go into it, we talked about the first week, the different gods that were represented there in Corinth. They would have their big, massive, beautiful temple, but then they had the spot where that deity uh, was said to, to reside, if you would. And Paul's actually using that language as he talks to them. He says, guys, when you come together, you are not just the building, the temple, but you are that inner dwelling place. In the Old Testament, what did we call that place? The Holy of Holies where God would meet with man one time a year, and it was the high priest as he would enter into that place to offer the sacrifices for the year, the day of atonement. Today, you and I, in the New Testament, we have a great high priest who is our intermediary and allowing us to now come boldly to the throne of grace as we will. And we come and we can offer up spiritual sacrifices. And he says this, church, when you guys come together, when we come together, we are that holy place. The Old Testament, Holy of Holies, New Testament, Christ himself, and we are the temple of God. There's a sense where he is meeting with us. There's a unique sense that God, that God when we gather his believers together, that God is there. And I wonder if we really comprehend that. As we, as we gather, as we come together, as we sing, as we come together, we open the word of God. If we understand the gravity of that, that he is here. We are reading his very words, and he is here. I wonder if we gather and interact with each other with that in mind, how we interact with each other. No wonder Paul makes the conclusion with the divisions, or despise ye the church of God, or the, the body of Christ? Despise the body? Do you despise God uh, by, by, by not interacting properly with other believers in the church? And he says, don't you understand? When ye are together, you are the temple. And, and how good would that holy place be if there's a huge breach in the wall? How good, how, how, how appropriate would this place of worship, this holy of holies be for our Lord, Jehovah God, to, 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 to come to worship him, and yet there's, there's holes and there's drafts and there's just, it's a mess. You're the temple. Did we build this holy place with wood, hay, and stubble, or are we building it with, with gold, silver, and precious stone? So here's the application. We're the temple where God is supposed to meet. And what do we do? We're looking down on people. We're having divisions, schisms. That's what, that's what this church was dealing with. So he gives three imperatives, and we're done. If you're the temple of God, and God meets among you, look at verse number 17. If any man defile the temple of God. Now, who's the temple of God? We are. Ye are the temple. We got that so far? Do I need to start over? You're the building, you're the temple, okay? Uh, it says this, if any man defile the temple, he shall, uh, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now that's interesting. That's pretty explicit language, is it not? Destroy. God's going to deal with the squeaky wheel. 
God's going to deal with things. Uh, uh, I think about when the, when the church in Acts was experiencing revival and, uh, and things were happening. People were selling land to take care of the needs of the suffering saints and all this stuff was going on. And then this one couple sells their land and they come in and they lie to the Holy Ghost. Remember what happened? God killed them. Is God going to kill me if I tell a lie? Not necessarily. But there was something happening in that church that they were going to completely disrupt the moving of God. I can't tell you all the ins and outs of why God did that, but that's what happened. I think about uh, Achan all the way back in the Old Testament when they were taking over the promised land. And, and what did Achan do? He, he kind of hid some of the stuff, and, uh, so, some of the stuff he was not supposed to touch, the stuff that was supposed to be sanctified for the Lord, separate for him. When they, when they conquered Jericho, they don't touch that. That's going to be basically a tithe to God. That was going to be the first fruits. He said, everything else you conquer, you can have. And, and, <coughs> excuse me. and, uh, and Achan saw, uh, saw the, the Babylonian garments and the gold, and, and he kind of hid some of it for himself. And what happened? In Ai, they lost the battle. And God had to bring it to light, and they killed him and his family. Why? Because it disrupted what God was doing. I'm just saying, remember what I said earlier? It's not about me. God's doing something. And I need to get, up, get on board and give him a part of it. I'm not trying to like scare you. Oh, God's going to take care of you. Know, God's going to judge you and kill you if you don't. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, it's interesting here. He says this. If you defile the temple, and, and, and what's the context of these divisions and these schisms and these identification, all these things. And he says, understand, you are the temple. You're where he comes to dwell. And if you're going to defile it in some way, God's not going to tolerate that. It's hurting the rest of the body. So, we don't defile the temple. We are connected not only to him, but we're connected to each other. Notice secondly, so, so we see the imperatives. Don't defile. Secondly, look at verse number 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, he that, that, that he may be wise. For wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in his own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. We've already talked about that earlier in the, in the, in the book. But uh, what, he, what is he saying? He flips everything. You guys are coughing in the world. You're following the world. You think that's wise? He flips it all around. And so what's he saying? The first one, he says, don't defile. Here he's saying, don't, dece- don't be deceived. Don't let yourself be deceived. Don't fall into self-deception. I love what James says. If any man is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he deceives his own self. You know the Bible, you know these things, but you're not doing it, you're in self-deception. But what's he saying here? Don't be deceived. Don't come with your own preconceived notions. You see, you're thinking how the world thinks. You're thinking these are the things that they think is important. These are the things that they think are, they esteem. And the reality is when we bring that into the church, God says, no, no, that's all foolishness. Everything's flipped upside down. Remember, we come back to the foundation. We preach Christ and him crucified. We come back to the foundation that this is what it is. We should all humble ourselves and realize this is our identifications with Christ and one another, not with, not with celebrity statuses and not with you know, name dropping and all that kind of stuff that the world is falling into. He says, don't do that. And then he quotes some verses, Job 5.14 and Psalm 94.11, showing that this was God's thinking all the time. You think you're something? Humble yourself. You think you're smart? Humble yourself. You think you're, you know, you're proud? Humble yourself. Get low. See, it's not my wisdom. It's his wisdom. It's not about me. It's about him. Don't fool yourself is what he's saying. So we don't defile. Don't be deceived. Look at verse number 21. Let therefore, or therefore, let no man glory in men. Now this is really interesting. This is kind of a summary statement. Therefore, because of this, don't glory in men. Look what he goes on to say. 
for all things are yours. That's interesting. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that, that's Peter, uh, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And what is he bringing to light here? He's bringing our inheritance to light. By dividing, you're just, uh, and, and just kind of uh, hunkering down with your favorites. I, I'm with this group, and I'm with this group, and all that kind of stuff. He says, you're robbing yourself of the blessing that church is. Don't you understand? He kind of speaks in hyperbole. He, he says, when I gave you the church, I gave you the world. You have everything. He says, all are yours. And whether it be Paul or Apollos, what are these? These are the different workers, right? These are the ones that are building. These are the ones that are part of this, this, this construction. That would be you and me and those that are involved in the building of people. God gave these people and, and other helpers. And, and what, what's he saying? He says, this is all for you. Let's remember this. There is blessing here that God has given in, the, in this thing that is church, that ye together make up the temple, that ye together are where God uh, shows up, if you would, and yet they were dividing. And he says, guys, when you've done this, you're completely missing the whole thing. No wonder you haven't experienced the Spirit of God. No wonder you haven't felt his presence. No wonder there hasn't been anything happening because you're divided when he says, when you're together, I've given you all things. And Romans 8 talks about the inheritance with Christ. I believe that's what Paul's alluding to right here. This inheritance with Christ. In Christ we have all things. The future that he's got, us, got for us. The fact that we as a church should be lacking nothing. When you consider the spiritual gifts, when you consider the resources, when you consider the, the helpers, when you consider the, the spiritual uh, uh, leaders, we should be lacking nothing as a church. When we're divided, we lack everything. Divided, we fall. And so what a challenge as he gives us. He says, guys, you're the building, and more specifically, you're a temple. More specifically, you're the inner part of the temple where God is. When you come together, recognize that. See that for what it is. Minister to one another, build with gold, silver, precious stones, take the time, build right, and understand we have an inheritance that's coming. Hey, we have a judgment seat. We have an inheritance. And folks, as a church, we should be lacking nothing. Well, we have a word of prayer. Father, we